This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host... Jane Brown. Libby is off today. She will be back later next week. When we learned last week that 80 uniformed Toronto police officers would soon be patrolling the TTC to try and prevent any more random acts of violence, we were also told by the police chief these officers would be working overtime to fulfill this measure. So who's paying for these overtime hours? That's among the many questions being asked by a group of six Toronto City councillors in an open letter to Mayor John Tory. Is it a valid question, and why are they not getting an answer? And now, it's time to tune into the town. This is where we begin our conversation with our Thursday Tune Into the Town panelists. David Crombie is a former mayor of Toronto. Lauren O'Neill is senior news editor at Blog TO. And Karen Stintz is CEO at Variety Village. Hello, panel. Hi, Jane. Karen, I'll start with you since you have the most recent attachment to Toronto City Council. Where do you think these overtime funds would be coming from to pay for the 80 officers on the TTC? My expectation, it would come from the police budget and um, that if there was an overage to the budget that the city would then um, make the organization whole. But, uh, you know, the police do manage their overtime budget and it's already a line item. And uh, it would be my expectation it would come from there. David, John Tory has released a statement in response saying it's disappointing some councillors would rather play politics than work together on immediate and long-term solutions to violence and crime. Are these six councillors playing politics or bringing up valid concerns? Well, of course, politics is, is, is no stranger to, to the operation of council, but, but it seems to me that this is a part of a unintended, perhaps, but part of a casualty of the of the move to have uh, the mayor have more power and the and, and the council less, it seems to me that it's not some some national secret of what we're paying people to provide service to the public. That should be open and public and clear to everybody. So I'm not sure what motivations may be, but I have no doubt that it's the kind of information that should be public when it's done. Lauren, as you ask some good questions, uh, including wanting to know more about the Toronto Police Service and TTC's approach to develop a system safety and wellness plan. They also want to know if the officers are trained in nonviolent de-escalation. What are your thoughts about some of those questions? I mean, I think they're valid questions and they have every right. The counselors have every right to ask these questions. I think it's a little bit callous of Tory to just be like, well, we need to do what we need to do. I, he's accusing them of playing political games. But I do think that they raise important questions about not only where the money is coming from, but like you said, how it will be used. And because putting police officers across all of the TTC vehicles, I mean, that they can with 80 of them working overtime, um, I don't think it's going to, it's necessarily going to be a positive for everyone. You know, marginalized communities that have, we have statistics to show that have been kind of targeted negatively by police in the past. I, I don't know if this is going to be a great thing for them. Um, and we obviously need people who are trained in crisis health services as well. So I think it's a valid question for them to ask the police. Like, are there going to be officers who are trained to deal with people who are having mental health crises? Because that seems to be a lot of the people on TTC uh, committing acts of violence right now. Karen, is it appropriate? Or do you feel it's appropriate to Mayor Tory's response to sort of brush off uh, the, the concerns in this open letter? Well, to be honest with you, yes, to be candid, because um, there, if those counselors want to ask those questions, then there's ways in which they can do that, which includes going to committee, going to the police services board, um, you know, as Tory said, directing them to the agencies that are actually managing those issues. And so this is nothing but a media stunt, to be candid. And they got their points because now they're getting talked about. But, uh, you know, the reality is that police presence and security presence in the subway um, has been proven to work in New York. 
uh, in the last four months because New York is experiencing something similar to what we are. And since the New York, uh, since New York decided to increase their security presence on the subway system, particularly the subway system, um, crime has gone down 16% in four months. And so it does work. And, um, you know, the other reality is that there are vulnerable communities that are accessing the CTC and not paying. And if they need to do that, okay. But uh, the reality is there are some incidents on the TTC that are causing other riders to feel uncomfortable. And I will tell you, when I was on the subway and I saw the security presence of someone, of an officer on the subway, I felt immeasurably safer. And so um, we can debate whether or not there should be different resources being deployed for other purposes. But the candid, stark reality is that there's a lot of vulnerable people that are riding the subway using it as a complement to the shelter system. And there's incidents that are occurring that are making people feel unsafe. Those are the facts. And one way to deal with it is through increased police security and presence. And I think it's appropriate. Is it too soon? And I'll put this to the Zoomer radio listeners as well. Is it too soon to draw a conclusion that more uniformed officers reduces the amount of crime? And I bring that up because as opposed to last week when we were having incidents of violence happening every day and multiple times a day, so far this week, knock on wood, it has been relatively quiet on the TTC. Numbers to call are 416. 3600740 or toll free 18667404740 coincidence david or do you think that uh, these 80 officers uh, where they've been placed is having a positive effect oh i think it's having a positive effect i have no doubt about it in fact i've, I've been long and many many people have been an advocate of more community policing whether it's on the ttc or not um Police presence is very important, and, and it should be done as a matter of, of course, in, in, in our policing setup. So I, I don't have any doubt that it's having an influence that ought to have. So uh, that's why I think the question of whether or not the information should or should not be public is separate from what's being done. What's being done is appropriate. I have no idea. Uh, somebody does, I'm sure. I have no idea what kind of qualifications they were looking for, were they looking for people who had extra uh, training in certain aspects of policing. I don't know that. We should know that. But, but uh, no, the idea of having a presence uh, of, of uh, police in community, whether that's a TCC or not, I'm all in favor of. Maybe, Lauren, um, both sides are, are right. You know, Mayor Tory and the police chief and the TTCC EO putting in place this fairly quick uh, stopgap solution. And yet uh, you wonder why Mayor Tory wouldn't have answered their questions in response to their open letter with his open letter. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that this immediate response is a good thing. Like, if, if it's hard to say if it's causation or correlation, whether or not crime seems to be a little bit less prevalent on this TTC this week. But like Karen said, it makes people feel safer, too. And I, I would feel a lot more confident riding the subway right now with a police officer on board uh, than otherwise. And so I think that, you know, they might very well have be done the right thing. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of it would be nice if them to just answer the questions and not blow them off. It was just kind of like a, meh, I'm the superpower mayor and um, I can do what I want. But but I don't think that the move itself was was bad. I I mean, we definitely need more security services on the TTC. And if that is how we're going to do it, I mean, you got to make a decision fast. And it seems to be working in one way or the other. Uh, on that note, with the superpowers of the mayor, uh, the six councillors in question here who wrote the open letter, their names are Amber Morley, Gord Perks, Alejandra Bravo, Ozma Malik, Josh Matlow, and Paula Fletcher. Uh, I'm wondering, too, Karen, if they are setting themselves up as the opposition to the strong mayor and the third of councillors who are required to pass bylaws going forward. Oh, there's no question about it. I mean, you know, Councillor Perks has been an agitator since he first got elected. And, um, you know, and I think these new councillors are in a unique position because the size of council has shrunk and their numbers being what they are, that they are, uh, you know, trying to figure out how to assert their authority early on. And I think what you saw from Tory, it was just a statement of, um, you know, his 
his response back was one of, no, you don't have the power and no, you don't have the authority. And so if you want to get questions answered, go through the right channel. Right. <laughs> and so I think Tori was playing politics too. And, um, and I understand where it's coming from. David, what do you think about this vocal minority opposition that is forming? Well, it's, it's bound to form. I don't know who will be part of it or who will not be. But because of the way it's now being set up, there's a, there's a not artificial, but there's a an, probably an intended tension now constantly will be between the mayor's office and, and certain councillors because there's, there will be an assumption, if not on the part of the mayor, although I think it will be, certainly on the part of the mayor's staff and its organization uh, to, to assume that somehow, because the mayor's got the power and the glory, uh, then he can he can do it on its own. I think it's foolish. I think the mayor should make should go the extra mile always to make sure the council has uh, public information. Right. Then they have nothing to complain about. Yeah. Oh, they'll complain. <laughs> they'll still complain. <laughs> um, before we move on to the next topic, Lauren, a final comment from you on 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 the six vocal councillors. Yeah. Well, well, I would say that those those councillors are all a little bit. If you would look at the political spectrum on the left side, and uh, it does seem like. They're forming a coalition of sorts, even just by executing this public letter, you know, a united front. Um, and, and I think that the fact that Tory kind of was so flip about it and blew it off, like, no, I'm the strong mayor, speaks to the fact that he knows that. I think he can see that coming, that there will be kind of a coalition um, of opposition against him and, and that these councillors are at the forefront of it. <laughs> If you're just joining us, it's the Tune Into the Town Thursday panel. Jane for Libby, along with Lauren O'Neill, Senior News Editor of Blog TO, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and David Crombie, former Mayor of Toronto. Today is the deadline for Toronto property tax owners to make an online declaration that they live in their home for more than six months a year in order to avoid paying the new vacant property tax. Do you think the message resonated with uh, Toronto homeowners, Karen? I know you were saying when you and I chatted a while back that it was all the talk in the dog park. Yes, it's true. <laughs> and then everybody went to the uh, the website, you know, to click click the box that I really, really, really promise. I really promise. Fingers crossed. Promise that I live in my house. <laughs> and then they went on with their day. Um, so you know, I, I don't. You know, aside from the fact I'm not sure it's going to provide the revenue stream the city is hoping for. Um, you know, I, I, you know, talk about vulnerable communities. I do worry that uh, certain homeowners aren't even aware of this requirement and may end up getting uh, an additional charge on their taxes because they just didn't know they had to fill it out, right. you know, particularly seniors living in their home. Uh, there was um, something that came in the mail, an envelope that came in the mail with the information about the online declaration. But as we all know, David, the vast majority of mail we now get is junk mail. So you can see that people would have thrown it out. Well, I think that's a danger. And I think uh, clearly what, what Karen had to say is spot on. I, I think that's we're not sure what kind of revenue it's actually going to bring. It's yet one more uh, piece of aggregation come in the, come in the way of uh, of, uh, of Toronto residents and voters, so I, I, I'm, uh, I'll, I'll wait and see uh, what what they get out of it. But 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 there we are. Yeah, Lauren, I'm interested to see how many people have submitted declarations and and how many people are going to get dinged for not doing so. I, I thought it was really interesting. I was reading this morning that. Of course, if someone is vacant from their home for medical reasons, they they will not be forced to pay this tax. Or if their home is under renovations, I'm not sure what this specific clause says, but there are so many houses in Toronto right now, like walking down the street that have renovations of some sort going on. Like, I wonder if that could be used as a loophole for having a house vacant. Um, I know that this was a, a thing that was happening in Egypt many, many years ago. My husband was there and telling me about that. There's a lot of unfinished buildings because if it's not finished, then they did wouldn't have to pay um, certain tax on it. So that I would just want to explore that a little bit more. <laughs> right. myself, I'll go digging and see because that could be a, a loophole that a lot of people, if they don't want to pay this tax, could take advantage of. And in addition to the byproduct of maybe uh, some people will get fined $250 for not making uh, the declaration. And that is unfortunate, David, as you were mentioning, and Karen alluded to this. Uh, David, ultimately, is this a helpful and fair tax uh, for the city of Toronto? Well, it's probably it's helpful if it raises enough money. As I say, I, I, I already have a bit of doubt that 
that the game is worth the candle, but I'm willing to wait and see. Uh, people, uh, people are inundated with things that they need to do uh, now from all three levels of government or four. Uh, and and I, 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 I think you have to be pretty clear that it's fair uh, and that you're, 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 we're gaining revenue for good purpose uh, on it. So I, I'm, I'm not, I have my doubts, as we used to say. Uh, but but I'm willing to wait and see. Okay, we'll leave that issue there. Uh, panelists, I want to know what you think about the latest allegations by the incoming Ontario NDP leader, Marit Stiles, that the mayor of King Township knew about development for a new hospital on Greenbelt land before the Ford PCs announced the plan. David, I'll go back to you first, since you have ties to friends of the Greenbelt. Maybe you could further explain these allegations. Well, there's there's a, a, no doubt that there are allegations ab- uh, abroad now uh, that uh, that there was skullduggery going on between members of the of the of the provincial government uh, and uh, uh, and members of the of the, uh, of the land development industry, uh, and it had had uh, there was privileged information and thoughts and so on uh, going on that allowed uh, that that allowed uh, developers or some developers to be able to have uh, an opportunity. Uh, an open opportunity uh, to make money when uh, by having information that they were not supposed to have. Um, so I'm not sure where it's going to be, but 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 uh, we should note uh, that there's already three uh, different kind of uh, investigations going on from the Auditor General to the Integrity Commissioner uh, to the OPP. So we'll see what they've got to say, and I'd I'd, I'd rather we. I, I certainly all hold my own fire on the matter until they report. Okay. Uh, Karen, so the mayor, the King Township mayor, Steve Pellegrini, is not happy and says Stiles' accusations are false and he is waiting for an apology. Your thoughts? You know, it's just one of those moments where if I believe in coincidences, you know, maybe he should get an apology. There is something that is just too convenient about how all of these meetings and decisions and announcements unfolded that I, I think the mayor of King Township would be wise to hold his powder and say, you know, I look forward to the outcome of the investigation that will either clear me or not. And um, if, you know, it's always back to what is that saying from Shakespeare? He or she doth protest too much. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, you know what? I would be quiet. Personally speaking, I would be quiet and just refer it back to the investigations that are already underway, as David alluded to. Um, but you, you just, it, you know, in your attempt to stand up and say, I did nothing wrong, it kind of brings to light that maybe you did. Uh, Lauren, and I guess the integrity commissioner uh, who is receiving this latest information, uh, a letter dated, I think it, wait a sec now here, I just want to get this right. The letter dated January 27th. Uh, the NDP alleges details about the removal of at least one portion of the green belt were discussed verbally days before the Ontario government announced its intention to remove 7,400 acres of land from the green belt to allow for development. I guess, you know, as both Karen and David are, are saying, the integrity commissioner, the AG, uh, the OPP, they will have the final say. I mean, where there's smoke, there is often fire. I, I think that it's going to be really interesting to see the results of the investigation. Like like you said, um, the developers, the, the rice group that had purchased this land met with Pellegrini on November 1st, three days before the province actually announced on November 4th that this land would be open for development. So it's just a, like, like Karen said, like if you believe in coincidences, you know it's possible, but it's also it, it's kind of shady looking. So I, if, yeah, if, if I were the mayor um, of King Township, I would, I would similarly just be like, well, we'll see what happens. If he's innocent, he has nothing to fear, but he does seem to be protesting a little bit too much to make it look like he did nothing wrong. And I'm certain, David, and without giving up too much from your perspective as a friend of the Greenbelt, uh, this likely will not be the last kind of accusation that we see before we get any kind of reporting back from the Integrity Commissioner or the AG. Oh, no, the fight for the night for the Greenbelt, for the, for the future of the Greenbelt, is ongoing almost daily. The provincial governments attack and from a variety of, uh, of uh, directions on the green belt uh, is, 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 is sustaining itself. And so I, I, I expect we're certainly the people I'm, I know and, and uh, 
and, and respect. They are girding for a continuing battle over the future of the, of the Green Belt, which the provincial government, no matter what it says, is bent on unraveling. Uh, and this is sort of off topic, David, but uh, since you're with us, I'm curious what you think about uh, the whole thing with Mike Schreiner being uh, encouraged to leave the Green Party and uh, join the Liberals and run for uh, for leader. Oh, uh, I, I promise not to offer any advice whatsoever uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and let him figure all that out. I, I think the only thing I can, can distract me at any rate was that the people who are within the Liberal Party now seeking leadership um, sort of felt the back of a hand from people who thought they should go outside the party. Having said that, um, Mike Schreiner, it needs to be said, has, has made, a, a, I think, a, an impressive contribution uh, to the public life of the province. Uh, um, and it may well be that, that he's doing that for the best position he's got now. Right. Uh, I mean, on, the hand, on the other hand, yeah. I, I would fooling around with somebody else's politics is always a difficult thing to do. Right. I guess he has to decide. And he's saying he was on with Libby the other day, just saying that he wants to hear back from people. Will he have more power to help save the Green Belt as leader of the Liberals or leader of the Green Party? Uh, that's probably what he's wrestling with, David. Well, that's right. And, uh, and certainly he's made, a, I think, uh, a, a, a terrific contribution so far in the fight. We have one more topic here for our Tune Into the Town panelists on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. We've got this situation in Toronto where hundreds of Midtown apartment tenants in a single building have not had heat in their building for more than a week, apparently because of a broken boiler. Uh, we've just learned about this in the last day from the councillor who represents the area, Josh Matlow. Unfortunately, he was busy visiting his dad today, so we won't be able to talk to him about that today on Fight Back. Uh, but Karen, um, it seems like an unacceptable situation. A day, maybe two, but more than a week? Oh my gosh, yes. It's unbelievable that um, it hasn't been rectified. And if it's a boiler issue, like I, I, I don't understand why a boiler, why that can't be fixed sort of same day. And um, that the fact that this landlord has been permitted to take this long is is really uh, questioning the city's response and commitment to these tenants. And I think it's egregious, quite frankly. Um, now, investigations, the city is now looking into it, uh, confirming that they received five complaints of low heat and two complaints about property standards from tenants of the Fleetwood on St. Clair West. The city has issued two notices of violation and two property standards orders. Karen, how much clout uh, do those have? Well, again, it's all um, about the city's response. And if they, I mean, you can put a piece of paper, you know, in the lobby and then walk away, or you can actually take action and follow up with the owners um, and the maintenance uh, staff and, and actually be aggressive in making sure that the work gets done. Or you can take the passive approach of just, oh, well, you know what, we gave them a notice of violation, they're supposed to comply and then, you know, go on and do something else. So, you know, I've seen the city when they want to, affect an outcome, that they're very uh, committed to that outcome when they don't really care, then they just write their notice and walk away. Mm -hmm. And part of my frustration with the city these days is the culture of apathy that exists within every single department in the city is palpable. Uh, you can't get calls back. The city staff don't care. Uh, they don't try to problem solve. And this is, this is an example of what is chronic within the city today. Well, exactly, Lauren. Well, yeah, it is my understanding that if the city issues a ticket to the company, they might will have to pay, you know, a $1,000 fine. If they get someone to court for for these property, um, file, property standards and notices of violation, then they could be looking at fines up to $100,000 a day. Why are they not doing this now? I mean, why are they giving them the time people are freezing in their apartments? It just doesn't seem like they're acting fast enough. So... Um, it, it raises the question of, of why, like, they do have teeth, some of these laws, like, they're not big teeth, but they have measures to actually carry this out, to ticket them, to bring them to court over this, and they're not, and it's been more than a week, and people don't have heat in parts of this building still, so, like, yeah, the general kind of lack of, 
lack of concern for right. human people because they just aren't doing anything about it. It's just apathy, as Karen said. Yes. Uh, hopefully, this boiler will get fixed before, I mean, the temperature is expected to, to plummet. Uh, right. It'll feel like minus 25 yeah. overnight tonight, Karen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so there is a sense of urgency. Yeah. And, um, you know, one would hope that the city would respond to that. But as I said, it's just, it's not, this is not a unique position for the city to take in terms of dealing with issues and just not dealing with them. And, you know, I don't know where everybody, I don't know what everybody's doing, but I can tell you, they're not paying attention to what's going on in this town. No, exactly. If it's been eight or nine days without heat in the middle of winter, uh, you're right. Nobody is paying attention or if they are, they're passing the buck. Uh, We've lost David Crombie, unfortunately. So David, if you're listening, thank you so much uh, for joining us as always every Thursday. Uh, Lauren, Karen, thank you both as well. Thank you. Thanks, Jane. Lauren O'Neill, Senior News Editor of BlogTO, David Crombie, former Mayor of Toronto, and Karen Stint, CEO of Variety Village. It is Jane for Libby. This is Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. And still to come, what you need to know about the latest grandparent scam. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby will be back uh, later next week. As always, when we talk about scams on Fight Back, we want to hear from you about scams that have been tried out on you because it helps the rest of us avoid these pitfalls. Numbers to call are 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-744-740. In the latest grandparent scam going around, a 95-year-old woman was told that her grandson was in jail and that they needed $10,000 to cover his bail. So the Burlington woman physically went to her local TD bank to retrieve the money and ultimately fell victim to the criminal's plan. And in fact, the plan was so elaborate that the crooks even got her to travel by taxi. Her son has since spoken out and says he's not even sure if the taxi cab was legit or just a fake service. He's also demanding to know why the bank did not call a power of attorney before making such a significant transaction for his aging and vulnerable mother. Detective David Coffey is with the Toronto Police Services Financial Crimes Unit. He joins Fight Back today to talk about this case and to offer tips of protection against falling for scams. Detective, thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Your thoughts first on what happened in this case. Um, I'm hesitant, actually, to speak about a specific case that's... uh, uh, that's just occurred. Um, I can say, though, that that case is uh, very similar to most grandparent schemes that are coming in, uh, in which a vulnerable uh, senior citizen is contacted. They are often provided transportation to take them directly to the bank. So that's not unusual. Um, the amount is uh, not unusual. Um, sadly, that case is not doesn't have really anything surprising in it. Um, it's a, it's an occurrence that uh, reared its ugly head, this scam, in 2021, and it's continued to evolve and uh, wreak havoc on our most uh, precious citizens out there, our senior citizens. So how valid are the complaints from the son that the bank should have intervened in some way j- before just giving her the money? Right. Um, again, I can't speak specifically to this instance, but the banks are in a hard, uh, they're, they're between a rock and a hard place, and they're, they're doing what they can given federal regulations, which they have to follow. Um, I don't, I can't speak to any power of attorney or anything like that, but essentially if somebody shows up at the bank, it's their bank account, it's their money, um, they will be given that money if the, if the bank has it on hand. So again, I can't speak to this case, um, but, and I know that the, the banks in general are, are, are aware of this scam. They've been working with the police, Toronto police and other police services. Um, they do their best. They often prevent this scam from happening by uh, not refusing, because as I said, they're not able to, but by asking questions. And, and sometimes they, they can get a sense, too, 
that something is not right. And by asking questions, um, educating the, the client who's at the cashier's desk, they often prevent it from happening. Um, once again, they, they are operating under the regulations which they have to follow. So they're in a tough position. In terms of what the son is complaining about, um, his aging and vulnerable mother being given this $10,000, would there, in some cases for these elderly clients, would they, would there be something on their file saying that before any money is withdrawn, the power of attorney needs to be contacted? I honestly can't speak to that. There okay. may, there may or may not be. It depends on the, uh, on, on the arrangements made with the power of attorney. But essentially, um, if, if, the, if the elderly citizen is found to be of sound mind and body, it's their bank account. Um, unless there's something specific written into their, into their uh, account with the bank, uh, which would be up to them to do, um, there's not much that that bank can do. So again, I apologize. I can't speak specifically no, to that, uh, that case. Well, I'm wondering if someone out there listening is in a situation where there is some sort of notation on an elderly parent's uh, bank account saying that uh, everything needs to be run through a power of attorney. I wonder if that is uh, a regular course of action in some cases. And in that case, uh, those family members may have some recourse with the bank. Wouldn't you think, Detective? Um, again, I'm only it's only supposition. So, I mean, power of attorney is for different things. Sometimes it is because uh, the elderly uh, person ha- is not of sound mind, um, and then there are greater authorities given to the power of attorney, uh, including uh, control over the, the uh, financial accounts and everything like that. But oftentimes it's just, you know, it's uh, in preparation for um, afterwards, and uh, they, it doesn't grant the, the authority to the power of attorney. And ultimately, it's up to the, the senior citizen themselves, because, again, uh, if they're of sound mind and body uh, and have, uh, have not been declared otherwise, then, you know, it's their money and they have control over it. I know our audience, people in our audience have experience. I mean, we're we're. Um, attempted to be scammed most days. I mean, I'm now getting scams in my text messaging uh, fairly regularly and obviously just uh, delete them right away. But I'm, I'm wondering, and, and uh, let me just give out the phone numbers first. If you've got a story about a scam, uh, either being scammed or, uh, wanting to pass along guidance so other people don't get scammed, 416-360-0740 or one 740 4740. Actually, Helen in Toronto has a story about withdrawing a large amount of money from the bank. Go ahead, Helen. Hi. I had to go. I had to withdraw a large amount, and it was around Christmas time. Um, they asked me why, and of course, I gave them an off the cuff snarky answer, which I won't use on TV. I mean, on radio. Um, but they did give me the money. On the other hand, my mother had dementia, and there was one time my mother and my sister went into the bank and took some money out, after which they had the royal shakedown, and I said to them, unless it's me with my mother, or me alone, or a check signed by me, don't allow it to be set, it to be done. So I've seen both sides of it. And when I asked, why are you asking me what I'm paying for? Um, they said, because some people have come in and even, and this particular teller said, one lady said, the man outside told me to say this and that I would be able to get the money. Ah, okay. Yeah. Well, thanks, Helen. Thanks for calling in. Take care. Bye. You too. 416-360-0740-1-866-744-740. Talking about scams along with Detective David Coffey with the Toronto Police Services Financial Crimes Unit. Uh, given the frequency of all these various scams and in the, all kinds of ways that they're delivered, are we becoming more savvy as a population uh, against these attempted scams, Detective? Well, I certainly hope so. Um, I think uh, for sure. I mean, like yourself, every day almost, um, there'll be a suspicious text message or a suspicious email or a suspicious phone call. Um, I think we're, for the most part, um, the majority of the population is becoming much more aware through efforts such as your show, for one, right now, which is excellent. Um, Toronto Police, we, we try to educate the public, too, through uh, through our news broadcasts and through our Twitter. 
Uh, we have TPS financial crimes, uh, which gives tips. Um, but again, that speaks to the vulnerability in this specific uh, crime that our senior citizens may not be, not to generalize because many are much better than I am, but many may not be as tech savvy as someone who is younger. Um, and so they may not uh, have access to uh, uh, Twitter and Facebook and things that are, are giving them advice on how not to be scammed. Um, but yes, for, I think for the most part, um, and education is, is probably our biggest weapon against it, um, for the most part, we are getting smarter. Unfortunately, as in every crime, uh, the criminals are generally one step ahead. And um, once the public gets uh, immune to one type of vulnerability, they'll come up with another one. And, uh, and until that one is uh, overcome, it, you know, it's, it, it's a cycle, unfortunately. It's a hot topic, Detective. Our phone lines are jammed. Sue in Mississauga is among the That's callers. Sue, Hi, Sue. Go ahead. You're on the air. Hi, yes. Um, I just wanted to let everybody know it doesn't matter how old you are and it doesn't matter um, uh, whether you're tech savvy or not. And um, it just, it doesn't matter. I got scammed by someone who called me, said my son had been in a car accident and um, he was apparently a lawyer and he was calling me from Quebec and him, my son and his friend got into this accident. It'll be $1,200 to get him out of jail. Then he said, I'll let you know when he's out. He called me back. He said, okay, it's going to be another $1,200 for the fine. And then it'll be another $2,400 to get his car out of the impound. And, and he had this young lad come on the line and cry and go, oh, mom, I'm so sorry. I should, you know, I shouldn't have tried to drive so-and-so to, to Montreal and blah, blah. And, and and it was awful. And I thought for sure that my son, they prey on your emotions. Wow. It doesn't matter whether you're... I worked for a bank for 32 years, and I knew all about this stuff. But yet, they prey on the emotions. Right. And your, and your relatives. Right. And he ended up getting just over $4,000 out of me. You have to go to Western Union. Don't go to a bank. Go to Western Union. And each time, you say, oh, don't go to the same one because there's a limit. And they know all the right things to say and all the answers to come back with. Like I said, okay, well, I'll come right out to Montreal now to see him. Well, that's okay. One, the other guy's mom is coming out to pick them up. That is and amazing, Sue. They know all yeah. the answers. It's the power of suggestion, right? That you thought that that person on the phone was your son. Yes. Wow. And, and he was crying and, he, and I said, well, let me call you back. Well, you can't. My phone was broken in the car accident. So I'm going to have to go get another one. For now, you'll have to go through Patrick, the lawyer that's trying to help me. And and it's just on and on and on. And they know exactly what to say. And $4,000 later. However, with Western Union, whoever else might have been scammed that way, um, there is um, a suit out with Western Union now. And you can Google it. And it was on CBC News and all that kind of stuff. And they're trying to get some of the scam money back from Western Union. Okay. Well, I really appreciate your call. It just, it just, it just shows us, thanks to a detective, how vulnerable people can be when it comes to uh, something happening to their family members or the idea that something horrible has happened. Absolutely. And, and she made the perfect point. It doesn't matter sometimes how tech savvy you are or your age. Um, these people that make the phone calls, are trained in this. They're experts at this. They're professional salesmen to, in effect, um, they know what to say. Um, they've got a script. They've, it's, that was a textbook case, which she said there with a the little nuance of the Western Union. Um, a danger is oftentimes it's not, not through Western Union they're getting their money. They're having couriers show up at the door of these people and having the money handed to them at their door. Um, but these, they're experts. They're trained. And they can convince you, and they can trick you. Um, having with, tricking that woman, lady into thinking that her son was on the phone. They can disguise their voice. They can say they they have a cold. Uh, during COVID, they would say, "Oh, I'm wearing a mask." Um, so they have an answer to everything. Um, having said that, they don't have answers to specific questions. The way that people can protect themselves is don't answer questions so much, but ask questions. Because afterwards, people are convinced when they talk to the police that this person identified themselves as my grandson, Jonathan, 
or a specific person, but when we talk to them and we ask them questions, it becomes clear that the person didn't volunteer the name Jonathan, the victim did, um, because the caller may say it's your grandson or your nephew, um, and then the, and the answer is, is this Jonathan? And then, boom, they're off to the races because you've given them that. Right. So to really to protect themselves, provide, I mean, uh, at the end of the day, that to protect themselves is the Toronto Police, nor any other police service, nor any courts, nor any doctors will ever solicit money in such a manner. Um, most victims also say that while they were talking to this person, they knew they had they they felt it was wrong. They felt that they were being scammed. But these people are such experts, and they're so convincing that despite those hesitations and and that 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 voice in the back of their head, people still do it. And then, unfortunately, it's not until afterwards where they will call the individual person who they allegedly just helped get out of jail, or they'll call another family member and say, "Hey, is Jonathan okay?" And then, of course, the scam is revealed immediately. But those questions need to be asked sooner rather than later. And like I said, the, the information, just you can't answer their questions and um, just listen to that voice in the back of your head. And we will never come to your door for money. It doesn't happen. All right. Let's go back to the phones uh, to hear more about your scam stories. Douglas in Oshawa. Go ahead. You're up next. Douglas? Yep, Douglas, it's your turn. Go ahead. How are you? Uh, first of all, I just want to give a big shout-out to Libby, and I, I was listening to her yesterday. I hope she's going to be okay. That's very um, nice. Thank you. Um, I'd like to know how these people get a hold of your uh, email address, your phone number. I mean, is there people out there selling lists of numbers? Oh, that's a good question, uh, Detective Coffee. Well, uh, I can't speak specifically to that, but what we do know is that um, these people have lists upon lists upon lists, thousands of phone numbers. So before they hit on that one victim, they'll make thousands of phone calls. Um, whether it's just, I mean, we don't have telephone books anymore, but if you can think of it in that way, where they're just going through a telephone book and they're just making phone calls, one after the other, one after the other. And once they, I mean, you can generally, if an elderly person answers the phone, um, then, then they'll hit on that and they'll, and they'll go into their, uh, their procedure and everything like that. But, um, whether they're getting email address lists from other ways, I mean, fraudsters get those, get, get our information every day from, uh, from hacks that happen to various companies and, and, uh, things like Facebook. They get a lot of information on Facebook where, where you're posting information about your family. So they, they'll have a research. They'll have an, they'll, if they're going to call you, they may try to research you first. So maybe they will try to find out your, your family members' names or where you live or, you know, things that make it a little more personal and a little bit more convincing. I really want to get to the rest of the calls, but we uh, need to wrap up. We're going to be talking about all the details around the public memorials for Hazel McCallion in our next segment. Uh, so, Detective David Coffey, uh, some final words, some final guidance, and also a reminder, if you're on the line or you wanted to get through with your story, tomorrow is Free for All Friday. So, Marissa Lennox will be in and should be happy to continue talking about this. Detective. Yeah, thank you very much again for this. Like I said, education is our biggest weapon against this. Um, you know, they, they say common sense isn't common anymore, unfortunately. But when you receive these phone calls, just ask questions. If it doesn't sound right, it likely isn't. Um, you know, don't give out any information. Know that we will not come to your door asking for money. We won't ask you to send money. And having said that, if it's, if it's involving family members, Contact those family members yourself. Okay. Uh, you call them. Detective David Coffey is with the Toronto Police Services Financial Crimes Unit. Really appreciate your time and expertise, David. Thank you very much, and thank you for this. We've all been invited to publicly pay our respects to Hazel McCallion. We will talk with Hazel's longtime friend and family spokesperson, Jim Murray, next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. 
Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Well, as we've been reporting on Zoomer Radio News and on our website, zoomerradio.ca, details have been released on the public memorials for the iconic Hazel McCallion. And fittingly, a state funeral for the legendary former longtime mayor of Mississauga will take place on her birthday, Valentine's Day, February 14th, when she would have turned 102. Joining us to talk about the plans, Jim Murray, longtime friend of Hazel McCallion and a spokesperson for the McCallion family. Jim, thank you for joining us and so sorry for your loss. Thank you very much. She was a lovely lady. How are you doing personally? Well, we've been a little busy. Uh, Hazel had asked me to help with organizing a funeral for her about 10 years ago. Little did I know it would end up to be a state funeral, but that's very fitting for the contributions that she made to being the architect of this city so over decades. Jim, tell years. us tell us about that conversation you had with her when she was 90 about her funeral. You know, she had said, you know, my children are not involved in the political world at all, and they're not really terribly involved in, the, in, in any political sense, so... Um, would you, along with David O'Brien, who was then the city manager and then went on to be president of Toronto Hydro, would you and David undertake to look after my funeral, whatever sense that would be at the time? And about a, two years ago, uh, she spoke to her children about it, and we we didn't really start planning a lot um, uh, in a serious vein as to what until uh, the Queen died. And we decided we'd better get on it, and we met with the city, and they wanted a city funeral uh, to invite the public and, and a memorial at the at the, uh, at the time of the Hershey Center Arena. And uh, so we started planning, and then uh, at, on Christmas Day, uh, I spoke with her doctor who said that she was in decline, and uh, we got pretty revved up and got things organized. And it, and then the province came along, of course, and decided it would be a, a state funeral, which is a tremendous honor. She would have agreed to that in a heartbeat. Um, but unfortunately, when they when they announced that, she was already gone, so she never... She didn't never heard that they yeah. were, didn't, Never heard they were going to do that, but she would have been thrilled with that. What was, Im- it, uh, Jim, what was important to Hazel um, in terms of how her funeral would be. She wanted a funeral that would allow, at at a facility that would allow the people that she connected with. She connected with Mr. and Mrs. Homeowner on your street or my street and everybody's street. And she, she connected with the hockey teams and the, and the homeowners groups and the, of various ethnic organizations. She was very close to the Chinese uh, community. She was close to the Portuguese community. In fact, even though when she was sick, they, they gave her a steroid that perked her up in terms of uh, energy and whatnot for about two weeks. They said it wouldn't last terribly long, but she went out to a Portuguese <laughs> community lunch from uh, noon until five o'clock in the afternoon. While she was at home supposedly resting after getting a diagnosis that she was terminally ill. Right. That was Hazel, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. So, Hazel, yeah. uh, Hazel never stopped. She may have uh, retired from being mayor eight years ago or nine years ago now, but she never stopped. She didn't, she didn't retire. Uh, Bonnie Crombie, God love her, in a very loving sense, used to refer to Hazel when they would both be at the same event, which was most offense. And she'd say, in this city, we have a mayor and a spare. Hmm. Because Hazel never stopped attending things right. at all. Right. Um, explain explain for us um, what this state funeral will be like on February 14th. Well, it will be an opportunity for close to 5,000 people. Uh, obviously, there'll be a fair number of dignitaries. The province is, is amassing that list and organizing where they'll sit and the like. 
but there will be uh, 45, 4,600 people who are citizens of this community who want to pay her their respects and want to honor her by attending that funeral. And uh, I think that's a whole lot better than being in a place where there's only two or 300 seats. And so would she. And she did. I, I started in, in earnest in, in planning uh, what, the, what the agenda would be and the program would be in, uh, on, it started on Christmas day and sh- I shared with her every single detail and she wanted to know everything. Oh, that's so she nice. Wanted, <laughs> she wanted to know who, who the pallbearers were going to be. She right. wanted to know who would be doing readings, uh, two or three readings. She wanted to know who the speakers would be. She wanted to know, uh, what she, and, and she decided who those people would be. I, I did not. I didn't decide to go and say, "What do you think of this?" She decided, and everyone who's there, it's because she wanted them to be a speaker. Oh, Jim, we only have a couple more minutes here, um, and we know tickets are limited for the funeral at Paramount Fine Foods Center in Mississauga. Ticket information will soon be available uh, for those who would really like to attend in person. What is your best strategy to get a ticket? I think you go online at, with Ticketmasters through the city. Uh, when they put that up today, it, they'll put it. They tell me it'll be up today, and you go online and you you request uh, your tickets, and they will electronically send them through email to you. Uh, and there, it's open seating. You can sit where. So if you want to get a, a seat closer to the front, come earlier. Right. Uh, if you show up. At 11 o'clock, you might be sitting in the Living Arts Center where they're going to have overflow and a video feed. Mm -hmm. And ahead of the service, so on the Sunday and the Monday, the 12th and the 13th, from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m., Hazel will lie in repose at Mississauga City Hall. Tell us more about that, and I'm sure the lineup will be very long. Uh, there will be a number of uh, condolences books for people to sign, and uh, they will have a, a, a slideshow uh, and a video loop running through big screen TVs while people line up to to uh, file through and uh, sign a condolence book and pay their respects to Hazel. Uh, they're expecting a fairly large turnout, and then the next morning is the is the funeral and my only advice again is if somebody thinks they want to be closer and not in the last row of the hockey arena stand then they should come early because you will sit wherever the seats are available when you get there um hazel had wanted to try and do some some seating for community leaders I, i i don't mean just i mean the people who were really the workers in other hockey organization or the baseball organization or the or the homeowners association, but it was logistically just impossible to accomplish it. So once you so, have your ticket, first come, first serve for the best seats. That's exactly right. right. Jim, thank you and so that's much. That's the way I, she would want it. I, I, yeah, I don't doubt that at all. Thank you so much for taking some time for us here on Zoomer Radio. Good to talk to you. Jim Murray, longtime friend of Hazel McCallion and spokesperson for the McCallion family. And if you didn't catch all the details, uh, they're on our website, zoomerradio.ca, under news, details of uh, Hazel lying in repose when that is taking place, as well as her funeral on Valentine's Day, Feb 14th, her 102nd birthday. It's Jane for Libby. Tomorrow, Free for All Friday, Marissa Lennox will be in the chair. Right now, we've got Bob Comsix News and then the number ones at one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.